Now, we've been in this for five weeks now. This will be the fifth week, and uh, hopefully we'll be ending this next week. Uh, remember, the Lord has just finished his Galilean ministry. He's entering into a land called beyond the Jordan or Perea. So he's beginning his Perean ministry. And um, we see the stage set there in Matthew 19, verse 3, where the Pharisees confront him. And we've already looked at this, but I just want to read that verse. And they ask him this question, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And so the Pharisees came at Jesus with everything they had. They didn't want an answer. They weren't really curious about an answer. They were primarily seeking to not only discredit Christ with the answer that he gave, because they knew the answer he would give, because he already gave it back in Matthew chapter 5 about divorce and marriage. And so they picked a particular time and in a particular place. This particular place was the same place that John the Baptist uh, confronted Herod Antipas, and you see where that got him. He got his head cut off. So the Pharisees, in their forward thinking, thought, hey, if we can put Jesus in the same situation, we can not only discredit him in front of all the crowds that are following him, and there were great crowds, as you can read there in the, first, in the second verse, large crowds followed him, and he healed them, and they wanted to discredit him, but they also wanted to seek to destroy him. And so in his answer, he didn't just give them a personal answer. He gave them an answer from God's word because he thought if he gave them a personal answer, then they would, it would give uh, credence to what they were trying to do. So he answered them directly from God's word, and we've looked at that back in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, God's purpose in marriage and, and all that we covered. And you can get the uh, CDs on that if you want, and I think the outlines are back in the uh, auditorium or you can listen to them online. And so after he answers them, They come back in verse uh, 7, and they said, Well, then why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And so they're still at it with him. And uh, eventually uh, he answers that question, and then we come to the clarification that the disciples needed because they were... um, caught off guard really by Jesus's answer because they were raised in Judaism that's all they knew for the most part and so when he answered them differently than what they've been taught from the Pharisees in the religious group they were taken aback and so when they were out of the Pharisees earshot the Pharisees left because they didn't like the answer and they realized that they couldn't uh, turn the crowd against them so they just ended up leaving as they always do but then the disciples went into a house with Jesus and uh, they asked him Boy, if it's that big of a commitment to get married, then who would want to, basically? And that's what they say there in verses, uh, verse 10. He says, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. In other words, one man, one woman, unity. Um, it's created by God for life. That's the standard for marriage as far as God is concerned. God hates divorce. He'll always hate divorce. But it is a reality in our day and age. So what he's saying is that no matter what your situation, it's not good for divorce to take place. And then he clarified the disciples' question, and he kind of said, well, some people are born eunuchs. They have an issue with the way they were created. Okay, 
So their reproductive organs don't work properly. And so he says in verse 12, some people, you know, were eunuchs from birth. In other words, it may be that God has you to be single, but not everyone can receive that saying. And we're going to get into that a little bit today. But he said eunuchs have been, uh, those who can't procreate, have been from birth. Some have been made eunuchs because we talked about the culture and they put certain individuals over a, a group of women who were for the leader, the king, or whatever, and they were to care for those women and to make sure that they weren't playing any hanky-panky with the women. They were made eunuchs. And then also, it says that some had made eunuchs uh, of themselves. In other words, they committed themselves to the work of God. They chose and they received the gift of celibacy, singleness, and they were able to receive that. Well, and we've gone over this for four weeks now, and you might be sitting here and you may be saying, okay, that's great. You keep on saying that God hates divorce and divorce shouldn't happen and, and blah, 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 blah. You keep on saying this high standard, but you know what? In reality, in the day and age in which we live, I don't know of a person who hasn't been touched by divorce in some way or fashion. Either it's been touched your life has been touched directly or indirectly by someone you know, you realize that, well, divorce is a real issue. So you can't just have this pie in the sky, high standard for marriage and say, okay, well, everything else is somebody else's problem. What about all the exceptions? What about the people that were married and divorced before they even came to Christ? Do they just have to live celibate lives the rest of their what if, what if a spouse passes away? What if you're married to a non-believer? All these situations are in your mind, thinking, you don't understand my problem. And you're right, I probably don't. But God's word addresses all those things. The only thing is, he doesn't do it here. Jesus doesn't do it here in this text. And for good reason. He's speaking as the Messiah, and he's giving God's ideal for marriage. He's saying this is the standard that God has. He's not interested really in your situation. He's not interested in what happened before you came. All, that, that's no relevance to him. He's just lifting up what the Pharisees dragged down, the law of God, and he's saying this is God's standard. And he can't get around with it. He hates divorce, and there should never be divorce, period. Other than, he says, for adultery, and in that case, we learned that basically the adulterer would be executed. So unless your spouse dies or commits adultery, you're to be committed to your marriage till the day you die. That's what we say when we come to the altar, for better, for worse, all that stuff. To death do us what? Part. Because that's the only time that marriage is ever going to be dissolved. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. Some people think, oh, well, that's just reserved for Christians. No, it's not. God designed marriage right from the beginning for everyone. And no matter what the legal system says, and we define marriage as this way, marriage is the binding covenant of a lifelong pledge of companionship between one man and one woman. It doesn't matter what the courts say. It doesn't matter what they're going to teach the kids in school. It, doesn't matter. it just doesn't matter. God's truth is God's truth. And so, you know, you can jump through all the hoops of whatever you want to jump through, but this is what... God created marriage to be. And since he's the one that created it, he's the one that gave birth to it, he's the one that came up with the idea of marriage, maybe we should allow him to define it however he wants to. So what do you do about marriage and divorce and all this stuff in the midst of a pagan society? I mean, for the most part, 
America is no longer a Christian nation. It's founded on Christian principles. There's Christian people in it. But for the most part, I think we could pretty much say that our, our nation has turned into a pagan society. You see it on every front. Doesn't mean God can't turn things around. I'm not a fatalist. But I'm just saying, unless God does a work in the hearts of the people who are in charge of certain things, you know, we're not gaining our wisdom and our guidance from the Word of God any longer. That's why you have people in Washington huddled around a table trying to figure out how to fix problems. They don't have a clue. They have no clue at all because they're not willing to go to God's Word and to see what God's Word says about their issues. It doesn't matter whether it's debt or, or whether it's laws that need to be passed, whatever, God speaks to all those things. That's how our nation was founded, and we've gotten away from that. So what I want to do is turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because as I said, Jesus doesn't go through all the details of all the minutiae of different relationships and all that thing, but Paul does. Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so we're going to spend the next two weeks over here in this chapter and try to get through it in um, the next two weeks. Now, you have to understand something before we get into this, this chapter. Jesus gave the divine ideal of God's principles on marriage. And Paul, here in the response to their questions of the church at Corinth, he gets to handle the mess. What's really going on in our society? Because, you know, you can preach, you know, well, divorce is wrong and you should never... But you know what? It happens. It just does. Well, what are the consequences of that? What are we to do about that? How do you apply God's divine principles for marriage if, if everything's already in chaos, is the question. Now, remember... Paul here is ministering to a Gentile community. They haven't been under the law of Moses. They hadn't been raised with the law of Moses. So when you look at the book of Corinthians, it cracks me up when people quote verses out of the book of Corinthians, mainly from the charismatic movement, lifting up, you know, well, here's, here's you know, our, our pretext for the charismatic movement. Well, you know what? The, the Corinthian church is the last place I would want to go for a pretext on anything. Because they were a mess. Literally, they were a mess. And Paul had to minister to them. And there was so much chaos, even in the Jewish community there, because of the Mosaic legislation. And then there was the, the Gentile one who, who really didn't see any legislation at all from Moses. They didn't just discounted that. And so you had the Jews who took the word of God and the law of God and made it into something that it wasn't to be. And then you had the Gentile community that just kind of ignored everything. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is really giving us a commentary on Jesus' ideal principle of marriage out of Matthew 19. He's taking it a little bit further. He's going to go into a little more depth Look at verse 10, for example. I mean, he covers basically everything, but look at verse 10. He says, Unto the married I command, and then he says, Yet not I, but the Lord. In other words, he's saying, Here's what the Lord said about this. 
He's reaching back to what the Lord said. I'm going to tell you something about being married, and it just doesn't come from me. The Lord already said this. He's just reminding the Corinthians about that. But then in verse 12, look at what he says. He says, to the rest, speak I, not the Lord. In other words, he's saying something above and beyond what Jesus has addressed. Jesus Christ didn't address all these issues. All the technicalities of the different relationships. What if the, the widow, or if you're, if you're a widow or a widow and, and your husband or wife has passed away, are you free to remarry? You know, what if you have a, a virgin daughter? When do you let her get married? All these things, all this stuff was coming up in this church. They had all these questions. And so he says, I'm, I'm not going to just quote the Lord. All right? He's putting himself on an equal plane with the words of Christ. That's what he's doing. You say, you mean Jesus' words have just as much credence as Paul's words? How would you answer that question if somebody asked you that? The answer is yes. They're on an equal plane. I know in your Bibles you might have a red letter edition, and so when you come to the red letters, you get all excited. Oh, this is Jesus speaking. Well, let me tell you, all right, it wasn't that way in the original. I mean, they didn't even have verses and numbers and all that stuff. We added all that to make it easier to read the text, to find our place in the text. Either you believe this book is inspired and it's the very word of God, infallible in every way, and every word of it is, or it's not. You can't. And people do this. They say, oh, that, well, Paul said that. I, I discount that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to favor the word of Jesus. You can't do that. It's all the word of God. And Paul was just as inspired as Jesus Christ when he was speaking on this issue. But he's clarifying to them. At times, he'll say, now, the Lord already said this. Not I. I'm not saying this. But the Lord, I'm just quoting the Lord. But here, the Lord didn't even mention anything about this. But I, under direct influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, am going to address this matter for you. He's putting himself on an equal plane with the Lord himself. You can get yourself in real trouble when you start dicing up the word of God. I believe this. I don't believe that. Now, even in verse 40 of chapter 7, Paul feels that he kind of has to say this there. He says, toward the end, he says, Yet in my judgment she is happier, she remains as she is, speaking of somebody who's not married or somebody whose husband's passed away. But he said this at the end, And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. <laughs> in other words, don't question for a minute what I'm telling you is not from the Spirit of God, because it is. He knew that. Even though in verse 25 he says, I have no direct command of the Lord. I'm giving you my judgment, and I know it is from the Spirit of God. That's, that's what he's communicating. So Paul, in this text of 1 Corinthians 7, is interacting with, with what Jesus already taught. And he's kind of bringing it a little more clearer into the minds of those who were the Corinthians. Well, let me give you a little bit of background on this society. As we said, it was a Gentile society. And it was a very, very, very pagan society. As a matter of fact, in the Greek language, the word to uh, uh, 
Corinthianize means to commit sexual sin. If you really wanted to get at somebody, call them a nasty name, you would call them a Corinth, Corinthian, which means somebody who's just lewd and evil and an adulterous person. I mean, that's what people thought of their society. That's the day in which they lived. And so that's the kind of society that all of a sudden God worked a mighty work in some people's hearts and they came to Christ and all of a sudden you have a little church being born right there amongst all these pagans in this wicked society. I mean, they were involved in worshiping all kinds of idols and deities and all sorts of things. If you ever look at or visited Corinth, I mean, there's just all sorts of gross artwork, genitals hanging out. It's just disgusting. It's just very sexually oriented. And so they come to Christ, and they don't have that background of, of sound teaching, even from a Mosaic law point of view. And they come to Christ in this absolutely chaotic mess. Much of the population of that part of Rome in that time were slaves. They were. The empire contained many, many slaves, and it was very clear that many of these slaves within the Roman Empire actually became followers of Christ. They became Christians. Some commentators believe that a majority of that church was made up of slaves. Now, marriage, in the strictest sense, didn't even exist for a slave because they weren't a person. That's how they were thought of. They weren't thought of as people. They were thought of as animals. So a slave owner would take their slaves and they wouldn't marry them. They would breed them. I mean, it's disgusting to even talk about, but that's how they looked at it. And they had different kinds of you might say commitments <laughs> that y- you might call. I mean, you wouldn't even call it marriage except for one. They had one that basically said that, you know what? Okay, you slave, you female slave, male slave, you're going to live in this tent. And they gave that a certain name. That was kind of a commitment. And so the slave owner looked over these slaves and he made them off as he saw fit to see who he could get the strongest children from and slaves from. There weren't any ceremonies. They just entered into this kind of cohabiting tent relationship. Well, what if one of them's come to Christ? And Paul begins to tell them about God's ideal for marriage. And they're not even married. And they probably haven't even just slept with one slave. They probably slept with several slaves. What are they going to do? I mean, they're, they're asking the question, who's really my wife? Where am I in this situation when it comes to God? And when you move beyond the slaves, you kind of come to the common people of Rome, the Roman culture, and they were married what they called a, a term... Usus, U-S-U-S. And basically, it was, a, it was a basic common law kind of a concept. 
If you lived with a woman for a year, you were considered to be legally married. I mean, we have that today, common law marriages. So people really didn't tend to get married at all. They just tended to experiment, and after a year, the marriage would become legal in the eyes of the Roman culture and government. I think here it's, I'm not sure, but I think it's seven years, something like that. So what happens, let's say, if you become a Christian and you've got a woman and you've been living with her for three years, but you've never married her, what are you going to do? Is she your wife or isn't she? See, all these questions were coming up in the Corinthians' minds. What if he had three other common law wives before that? Or what if he had one in this town and one in that town over there? Well, who's really his wife? See, all these things would come to the top. And they'd begin to question it. So they had all these questions for Paul. There was a third kind of marriage. And it was kind of the the situation dealing with the culture where you could buy the woman from the father. The old tradition of marriage by sale. In other words, if you're a father and you have a beautiful virgin daughter or whatever, um, and your your, uh, business isn't doing too well, well, you can sell her off and make some money. Very common. Very common thing. And so there there was that aspect of the relationships. But then there was a, a right reserved just for the noble families. And it was what we think of as a marriage today. Kind of a sophisticated, fancy kind of marriage. It's interesting, if you read about it, they actually exchanged rings. Um, that's where we get our, our traditions when it comes to the marriage ceremony. Uh, they would put the thing on the third finger of the left hand because in the Roman culture, that was supposed to be the, or the, the wise men taught there was a nerve running down from that finger to the heart. Interesting. So Catholic Church kind of adapted that, and we adapted that from them. They got together, they worshipped, they said prayers to Jupiter or Juno, or whoever they wanted to, some pagan god, and they exchanged rings, they even had a cake. They wore veils, they had music. They held their right hands. They had wreaths and all all sorts of things. I mean, it's amazing when you trace this stuff back, what you can find. And so you had all these different kinds of marital situations. And then you had Christ saving people out of these different situations. And really, only the fourth one is what we would call marriage in our culture today. We're familiar with that. And so the question comes to Paul... From the Corinthians, well, what do we do? All right, we get it. This is God's ideal. One man, one woman for life. That's great. Okay, no divorce. We understand that. But what, what do we do, Paul, if you're living where we live? Where nobody does that. But now we're Christians. How do we work all this together? How do you, how do you, you know, John MacArthur said this. He said, how do you unscramble the omelet? You know, you can't. Difficult. Well, that's what their question was. And it was a very common, 
Their, their, their culture was just one filled with all this sexual sin and all this, uh, you know, horrible stuff. But it was also just riddled with divorce. I mean, divorce was very, very common for those that were actually married. That was very common. People were involved in all sorts of things. Homosexuality, polygamy, concubines. One Roman writer says, Woman, uh, men have women uh, for wives, for the, for the housekeeping and raising children, and concubines for physical pleasure. So you had all this chaos happening. And there was even, history points out, a women's liberation movement. And one writer says this about them, about the li- women's liberation movement. He says, some were not content to live their lives by their husband's side. They carried out a totally separate life unto themselves. What modesty, here's how he describes these women, here's how they dressed and thought of themselves. What modesty can you expect in a woman, a, a woman who wears a helmet, hates her own sex, and delights in the feats of strength? He goes on and he says, some of these women were going bare-breasted through the streets with spears, sticking pigs and climbing on posts. I mean, that's the kind of women that you were dealing with, okay, on occasion. So you had all this mix-max of different, you know, stuff going on. And so when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, it says there very clearly, Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, Well, what matters? It doesn't tell us. But apparently, they wrote Paul and they said, look, here's our situation. What I just described to you, they asked Paul, what do we do about this? How does marriage fit into our culture? And so they asked all these questions, and now in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul answers their questions that they apparently sent by a courier or wrote wrote to him somehow. And if you don't understand the questions, you're not going to understand the answers. But in this chapter, if you read through it, I encourage you to read through it between now and next week. You're going to find every situation addressed. Every possible situation when it comes to marriage, divorce, all that stuff. I mean, he covers questions about single people, married people, people who are married to believers, people who are married to unbelievers, people who are already divorced and now are single. Do they have the right to remarry? He has covers about people, uh, women who are virgins, fathers and daughters that are, that are virgins. Should they give them in marriage or not? People whose husbands or wives have passed away, they died. Are they allowed to be remarried or not? He covers all those questions that Jesus didn't cover here in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. So let's look here, first of all, I think, at the first situation. They have questions about celibacy and about marriage. And so he starts off in verse 1. Paul says, because he's already got the question from him, he's answering them. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Boy, if you want to pull that out of context, you could could get in big trouble. What's that mean? It It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now remember... They're, they're being raised up in this pagan society, okay? And they come to Christ. Maybe these individuals have been involved in pagan worship where you, you have to sleep with a pagan prostitute. That's part of your thing and, and part of their worship. 
All these things were going on. Just a very gross lifestyle. And now they come to Christ and their mind, their lives have been filled with all this garbage all along. So they ask him, what about sexuality? Paul, is that a bad thing? Maybe somebody in the Corinthian church, because of all their sexual problems and all their marital and divorce problems and just their whole society was just, just, just gross, filled with all this sexual immorality. Maybe somebody in the church thought, you know what? I think we shouldn't have any sexual relations. Anybody. Period. Let's just throw the whole thing out. And so they're writing Paul and they're saying, is that, is that a good thing? Is sexuality unspiritual? Is sex evil? Is it bad? That's what somebody's telling us. In other words, somebody maybe told them, you know what, if you want to be real spiritual, you won't need sex in your marital relationships or in any relationship, period. Because if, if you don't have physical relations, that's, that proves that you're a very spiritual person. And so Paul addresses that right up front. He says in verse 1, It is good for a man not to touch or not to have sexual relations. If you have the version that says not to touch, the, the, the Greek means not to have sexual intercourse, not to have sexual relations with a woman. He says, you know what? It's good not to have a sexual relationship. It's good. It's okay. It's beneficial. It's honorable. It's okay, Corinthians, to be celibate. It's okay. It's not wrong not to marry. It's okay to be single. See, he needs to say that because there's, you can imagine their culture, there is the pressure. I remember when I was a youth pastor, a single youth pastor, and I remember everybody that would come to our church. You know, matchmaker, matchmaker, let's make us a match. Used to drive me nuts. And you know what? I just rebelled. I just wasn't interested. I went to a college called Christian Heritage College. And I'll never forget the first week I was there. One of the RAs in the dorm said, yeah, we call our, our, it's called Christian Heritage College, but we call it Christian Marriage College because we guarantee you'll, you'll have a wife by the time you get out of here. And I just said, ain't going to do it. Didn't interest me. Just wasn't on my radar at all. So I just poured myself into ministry. And as much as pastors, one after the other, you know, you need to get married, you need to get married, they just constantly beat this drum. I mean, it almost became a rebelliousness in my own heart to prove to them that I don't need to get married. It's okay to be single. Celibacy is a good thing. It's an honorable thing. It's an excellent thing. But look at what he says in verse 2. But because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 
In other words, it's okay to be celibate. It's okay to live for the Lord and, and just, you know, you don't need to be married. But his second point is pretty clear. To avoid sexual sin, that temptation, sexual immorality, to avoid that, God has created marriage. Because being celibate, if it's not a gift from God, can be a horrible thing. Because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man, look at what he says, should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Why? Because living alone in a celibate life, if God hasn't led you to that and you haven't been gifted in that area, or maybe you weren't a eunuch, okay, in one of the three ways we described. He's telling the disciples, you know what? Yeah, marriage is a big commitment. And it's for most people. Those who are not married are either burning with passion or they have the gift of celibacy. Very clear. If your celibacy is going to cause you to sexually sin, if your celibacy is going to cause you to commit sins either physically or even in your mind, then you need to get married. It's just that simple. It's okay to be celibate, Paul's point is, but it's not okay to be celibate if you're constantly sinning, physically or mentally, in that situation. So, the idea of some, you know, swinging single life, that doesn't belong in the Christian's realm at all. Met a lot of Christian young people over the the years. And they're, they're almost like the disciples in Matthew 19. They know marriage is such a big commitment and they just don't want to make it. I want to I have some time. I want to I have my freedom. I want to explore and do all these. Well, you know what? You're playing with fire. Especially if God hasn't given you the gift of celibacy. God created you for sexual union with a partner. And when you resist that, you're only going to resist it so long. It's okay to be celibate, but it's not okay to be celibate if it causes you to sin. The idea of totally abstaining from a sexual relationship, well, if you're not married, that's the approach you should take. It's not okay to be single and to be sleeping with somebody who's not your wife or not your husband. That's a direct violation of God's word. And God will not bless that. He just won't. Period. You can do whatever you want. But I guarantee you, your sins will be found out. There's consequences. I mean, just look at our society. Look at what marriage has fallen to. I mean, in Hollywood, if you're married three years, man, that's a long time. And they look at marriage as kind of a 
thing to flirt with. You know, well, I'll try this person for a while, and then I'll try that person. And you know what? If you're single here today, just let me tell you, that's what dating creates. <laughs> you know, when you go out and you start dating several people, you're dating different people, as the world calls it, dating. What are you doing? You're setting yourself up for failure. Why? Because you know what? If, if I can date... Put the name out there, you know. If I can date this, this gal or this man for a while, and when I'm tired, I can move on, and I'll date this person for a while, and then I'll move on. Well, what's going to happen when you finally get married? Well, you know what? You're going to lose the fascination of your marriage probably within the first year. And it's going to hit you right in the face, and you're going to go, wow, this is what I signed up for? I didn't see this. I didn't see this trait in her or in him. I didn't understand that this is what their attitude was going to be. Well, you know what? I think I'm just going to check out. I want somebody else. Okay, you're going away now, and I'm going to get somebody. That's what happens. That's why it's so important to understand the, the aspect of courtship, what that, what that involves. Because if you're just dating one person after the other, you're just setting yourself up for failure. Same thing. I mean, scientists, scientific studies, sociological studies tell us that people that cohabitate together, they live together before they're married, they have a much greater chance of divorce than the people who wait. Just scientific fact. And yet today in our society, we think, well, no, we've got to you know, try out the goods. We've got to see what they're like in the morning before they get at the shower. And you know, what are they going to be like in this situation or that situation? So we just, in our mind, we compromise that, thinking, well, it's okay. It's not okay. God says it's not okay. Because it's going to lead to something that's not honoring to him. So celibacy, Paul says, is good if you can handle it. If God's given you that gift, that's fine. But it can also, I want you to understand, verse 2, that it can be a very tempting situation. And that's why God has given each man a wife and each wife a man. Now, thirdly, he points out very clearly in verse 3 to 5, Listen to this. He says in verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then... Come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Celibacy is good, but marriage is more common. Celibacy is tempting. Don't say, stay single if you can't deal with the temptation to commit sexual sin. But he also says celibacy has no place within a marriage. None. Absolutely zero. In other words, if you get married, that's no place to not have sexual relations. 
to not to be celibate. That's not the place. It doesn't belong in marriage. Some translations say the debt. You know, the, the, the husband uh, should give, you know, owes his wife the debt and, and vice versa. It's an obligation. When, when two people come together in a marriage that you automatically become obligated to meet the physical need of your partner. That's what he's saying. This is one place where Scripture clearly and firmly upholds mutual submission. Mutual submission. Verse 4, it says very clearly, the wife doesn't have authority over her own body. Boy, isn't that a message we hear today in our society? I mean, you can have a woman get pregnant. And you know what? What she does with that baby, that's her business. That's her body. Has nothing to do with the guy that got her pregnant. Well, that's not true when it comes in the marriage relationship. It's not your body. You don't have authority over your own body. Your husband does. You don't like to hear that. That that goes against everything probably that you've heard before. But that's what he's saying. And he says, likewise, it's not just the wife who doesn't have authority over her own body, but likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. But the wife does. Does the wife ever have authority over the husband? Yes, in this case. (laughs) In this case, he does. Verse 3, it's in the present imperative. Let the husband continually, continually render to his wife that conjugal relationship, that, that debt. In other words, the relationship of marriage is to be continually giving. A continual submission one to another. you know what? When that doesn't happen, the marriage goes on the rocks real quick. Because it's not God's plan for celibacy to exist within a marriage. It belongs in the marriage. That's, marriage has been designed for that sexual relationship, that sexual bonding. One man, one female coming together in union for life. You're not more spiritual if you abstain from sexual relationships in your marriage. That's what some Christians even think. Well, you, you should... You know, have a certain period of time where you don't have any sexual relationships in your marriage so you could pursue spiritual things. Sounds real good, doesn't it? You know what? I mean, everybody's different. But if you're married to somebody who can't deal with that physically, your, your spiritual little experiment there is going to end in disaster. Because your partner is going to end up sinning, either Physically or even mentally. Because their needs not being met. Verse 5, look at what he says. He says, do not deprive. Stop depriving one another. That's what they were doing. 
because they had this warped view of sex. They had this warped view of sexual relations because of their background. And what Paul is saying is, stop this. In a marriage relationship, you don't deprive one another. Except for a time, perhaps by agreement. In other words, both of you say, let's, let's hold off on this for a while. We want to devote ourselves to something else. Maybe issues come up, whatever it is, and you're both okay with it. But he's very quick to say, but make sure you come together again. Make sure you restore that physical union. Because if you don't, Satan is going to tempt you. Because you don't have the sexual self-control. That's the whole reason you are married. (laughs) If you had the gift of celibacy, you wouldn't wouldn't be interested in that. You wouldn't be tempted in the area of sexual sin. At all, period. So it wouldn't even be an issue for you. But because they're married, they obviously had an issue, and so... Paul is addressing that. And some people within that church were saying, oh, no, no, just don't have any sexual relationships at all because, you know what, you're more spiritual if you just don't do it. And Paul is saying, no. It doesn't say that. Some people go back to the book of Leviticus and say, well, you know, that you should be celibate within your marriage relationship for 14 days a month because of the woman's cycle and so forth. It's ridiculous. It doesn't apply to us today. I often want to tell those people, well, okay, if you're going to apply that kind of a, a rule, that kind of an Old Testament deal that just basically had to deal with ceremony, just like circumcision was more about ceremony than it was. I mean, it was a, a picture of the heart, okay? And this whole idea of the, the woman and the, the husband abstaining from sexual relationships because of her cycle every month, it was an illustration to them that, you know what, to come to God, you have to be clean. And that's all it was meant to be. And yet we have people today, even within the Christian church, who say, oh yeah, Leviticus, you know, we're going to practice this. So 14 months, or 14 months, 14 days out of the month, you know, nothing's going to happen physically. Well, if that's true, then maybe they should get their little turtle doves and go find a priest in a temple Because if they read Leviticus 15, what it says, that's exactly what they were to do after that point in time. They had to go sacrifice, and they had to go have a priest, bless it, and do all this stuff in the temple. And you'd be hard-pressed to do that since the last time I checked, the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. So that's a silly argument that people put out there. But celibacy is not for marriage. There's a mutual responsibility there. And once you're married and you understand your spouse, I mean, maybe your spouse can go for an extended period of time without any kind of sexual relations. Some people can. Nothing wrong with that. But maybe they can't. You know, I've been to marriage conferences where the advice to the men dealing with their sexual relationship with their wife They conclude that, well, you know, the wife has the upper hand in all this. And so 
they design this little card that says, you know, a little smile face or a sad face, and you're supposed to put it on your pillow. So when the husband comes to bed, he can look and say, oh, well, not tonight. <laughs> so then there's no argument. There's no... That is so ridiculous. That is so silly. You know, I mean, there's a mutual responsibility here. I mean, if your wife is, is sick and she's got the flu and her body aches, husband, you don't have the right to go to her and say, oh, too bad, you know, I've got to have physical... Re-. No. There's a mutual understanding there, a mutual responsibility. And yet, on the other side, wives, I mean, you have to understand the way your husband is geared. I mean, all you have to do is look at him the right way. And it sends messages to him. You may not even know you're doing it. All of a sudden, you know, he's shaving, taking a shower, and okay. I think I'll go to bed early tonight, dear. Okay, whatever. He goes to bed frustrated. Because there's not a mutual responsibility. There's not a mutual understanding. There's, secondly, there's to be a mutual respect. You don't have authority over your body, nor does he. A mutual respect, one for another. And also a mutual res- restraint. We're to understand that, you know what, at times, to pursue spiritual things, there should be restraint. You know, and you have people on the other side within the Christian church saying just the opposite. You have campaigns, if you can believe this, in churches today, quote, Bible teaching churches, apparently, they call themselves. Okay, you know, we, we're going to put out this program, and this program says that husbands and wives, you should have sexual relations every day for seven days or 14 days or 40 days. What is that? Where does that come from? It doesn't come from the Word of God. All Paul's saying here is celibacy is not for marriage. But look at what he says in verses 6 and 7. He says, now a concession, not a command. I say this. And his point is, you know what? Celibacy is a gift. Singleness is a gift. He says, I wish all were as myself. Was Paul single? At this time he was. But we believe that he was married because he had to be, to be part of the Sanhedrin. So maybe his wife passed away. His wife apparently died. She was quickly forgotten because there's no reference to her in Scripture whatsoever. And the reason I say he's married because he goes back down he's talking about those who are single. And then in verse 10 he says, To the married... But he says this, I wish that all were as myself. But you know what? That's what I I wish. I wish everybody could just deal with their singleness in a way that honors God and, and that they're gifted with that after a period of time and they're just serving God. Because you know what? It's tough to be married and to serve God. It just is. It would be a lot easier as a single person. And Paul talks about that. We'll get into that next week. You don't have any concerns. You don't have any cares. It's just you and the Lord doing the work of the Lord. But he says this in verse 7, but each has his own gift from God. 
In other words, marriage and celibacy, they're both gifts from God. And depending on how you deal with that situation, you'll, you'll have a clear understanding of what your gift is. One of one kind and one of another. So what's Paul telling us here? He's saying, you know what? In, in conclusion, celibacy is good. To be single, that's okay. That doesn't make you unspiritual. But you know what? It can be a tempting situation if you're single. You can be more prone to be tempted sexually. But on the other hand, don't bring celibacy into marriage. There's a mutual responsibility. There's a mutual respect. There's a mutual restraint. And celibacy is a gift. Unfortunately, we have a lot of young people running around today in our culture who don't have the gift of celibacy. But they're not getting married. They're just playing. And they're playing with fire. Father, we ask that you would continue to teach us even next week as we conclude this section of Scripture. Father, we thank you that both marriage and celibacy is a gift from you. And Lord, that you, uh, with those gifts, you give us the ability to live lives that are honoring to you. And Father, we pray for each marriage here that is represented. Lord, I pray that you would uh, continue to speak truth in that marriage, I pray that you would continue to guard that commitment that they made to one another. I pray that you will continue to give them wisdom as they deal with one another in a mutual understanding uh, way. Father, that we are called to live one man, one woman together in unity before you. And Lord, we just we pray that you would protect even the marriages here in this church. Lord, we know we live in a world that is out to destroy uh, the marital commitment, the covenant of marriage. But Lord, they can't, but they're going at it with everything they can. Lord, I pray for single people here today. Lord, maybe they're single here and they're fine being single and they just pursue things with the Lord. Maybe there's those single people here who um, want to be married. And yet, for whatever reason, They haven't come across the right person yet. Lord, I pray that they would, first of all, turn to you. Lord, Paul says a little later on in 1 Corinthians that you should be okay with how you are. If you're single, be okay with your singleness. If you're married, be okay with your your marriage. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to a point where they can trust in you to meet their needs. Lord, that you would bring across their path the correct person at the right time, someone who loves you, someone who is in a relationship with you, someone who desires to serve you. Father, so many times people get married just because they're lonely and they want somebody around. And Lord, that's really not the honoring way to go about it. A lot of people who are married that really need to change who they are. And Father, we pray that you would help them to do that, that they would turn to you. But Lord, I pray 
for those who are single, that you would guard their purity, that you would help them live for you each and every day, serve you in ways that married people can't. And yet, knowing, Lord, that you will bring across their path the right person at the right time, and that they would not shy away from the commitment of marriage, but they would run to it. And Father, if there's anybody here today who does not know you, who hasn't put their faith, their trust in you, Lord, we serve a God who is there ready and willing to meet our every need, including our spiritual need, that of our sin. And that sin keeps us from you. And it's only through the Lord Jesus Christ as we come to him and we express our love and our commitment to him and accept the forgiveness that he gives us through the cross of Christ that we can restore that relationship, that bond with you. And Father, I pray if there's any here who has yet to put their trust in you, I pray that they would cry out to you. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me my need for a Savior. Help me turn my life over to Christ. He'll answer that prayer for you this morning. Thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.